Wanda Robles has been part of our uh, global partners for a number of years uh, serving the Lord, and uh, he'll talk a little bit about that during his sermon. Uh, I encourage you really, uh, you're in for a treat. I heard the sermon at 9.30. I'm still thinking about it, Armando. It was really a great word. I think it's a word that many of you need to hear, and if you want me to point out who needs to hear this, I, I can get Steve Thomas, definitely. Uh, but that's true every week. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, anyway, Armando, come and, and share the word with us. I'm so grateful that you're here, and it's uh, really, uh, I think it's a privilege for us to be involved with you and Jen and your ministry. Good morning. It's great to be with you all. Uh, it's been three years since Jen, our five boys, and I were back here. Uh, today, we are talking about doxology uh, and one of the great doxologies of Scripture, Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Um, and doxology is, is simple. It is about ascribing praise to and glorifying an object. Uh, and many of us perhaps don't think about it in these terms, but we're drawn to doxology. Uh, the objects we fix our eyes upon may vary greatly from person to person, but we all naturally do it, right? When a, a young person falls in love with the man or woman of their dreams, they do doxology. He is so amazing. She's so beautiful. When, when the sports fan has their team win the championship, they do it, right? They are the greatest of all time. And if you pause to consider, you will notice something about all those experiences when they happen to you in real life. They're not simply about the greatness of the object, but rather they are about our entrance into and connection to the greatness of that object. Right? The, the glory of the lover is immeasurably greater when they are speaking about their beloved. Right? The, the fans that are going wild to cheer on their team have entered into the glory of their team. They, they do not simply feel themselves to be outside observers, but participants in that glory. Right? The fans do not cry out, they won. They cry out, we won. And if you're a Christian— then I'm pretty confident that you have had the same experience that I have all the time when I read the great doxologies of Scripture. They, they draw you in. Something stirs within you. They, they lift your heart. You can, you can taste and smell something that you know is good beyond anything else, but something that often feels just a little bit beyond your grasp you know that you're built to be taken up into them, that real life is found when the substance that's there is truly experienced. But how do we enter in? That's our question for this morning. When, when Pastor Matt asked me to preach on the passage today, he said he'd like the message to reflect the realities and challenges and opportunities of our work in the Middle East. And perhaps more than anything else, taking part in the work God sent us to do in Istanbul has helped me to understand these realities. Let me read the passage, 
Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21. It's page 977 of your pew Bible. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Well, in many ways, it was the desire to experience the glory of God that led us to Istanbul in the first place. As, as Jen and I were finishing up grad school and we were considering different ministry options, there's one thing that struck me with particular force. On, on the one hand, I knew that for us to do anything of any true eternal significance, God would have to show up, right? We don't accomplish anything that really matters unless God is actively at work in it. And that is true no matter what you do. But I knew that if we went to Istanbul, that reality would be much more obvious than it is in most contexts. Because if we went, in theory, we were going to establish a new refugee ministry in a hostile land for a whole team of people that God would theoretically send. It was a task obviously far beyond our ability to accomplish. Like, we couldn't even put the basic earthly pieces in position that were necessary, much less make them successful and effective. And that means that I thought, before we left, if we go, there's only two really likely outcomes. One is that maybe God would show up in real, tangible, palpable ways. We, we would get to see him at work within us. We'd see him do things beyond our understanding. We'd see him actually move things. And I thought about that, and I said, you know, I would love to be a part of something like that. I want to enter in. I want to experience the substance of our faith. I thought, or maybe God would not show up. And in that case, we would fail. And we would fail obviously, and we would fail publicly. And that drew me. I thought, you know, I think if God sends us there, it's because he wants to do this thing. But if not, if God's intention in that season in our lives was not to use us in a real work of his power and grace, then I was content to go have an experience of failure and international humiliation before our family and friends. Maybe that was what we needed in the next step of our walk. And so whether it was through being humbled or through experiencing his power truly at work, I wanted to enter in. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is what we are built for. Do you want to experience it more? Well, our two little verses, if you do, show us the way forward. We, we learn about three things that we need to grasp in order to experience and enter into the glory of God. We learn about its relationship to our understanding, its relationship to our power, and its focus. And altogether, we learn this, that we experience God's glory as we enter into his plans and into his power for the sake of his person. So let's get started. The first thing we learn about is experiencing the glory of God in its relationship to our understanding and our desires and our expectations, far more than all we ask or think. 
simply meaning God's plans are beyond what we could ask or could think of, and we actually need to experience them. And so if you say, well, what exactly does that mean? And I think a lot of Christians go through three different stages of understanding ideas like this in the Bible. So at first, we're very young in our faith, the beginning of our walk, many of us read promises like this, and we take it as just a simple promise that things are going to be much better than we thought they'd be, right? You've been seeking after certain things, you've got certain desires, and we read promises like this, and we say, God's going to give me that, and he's going to give me even more that I haven't even thought to ask about. Sort of like a girl who's asked her parents for a toy horse for her birthday, and then she, she gets an actual pony, right? And here's the deal. This verse is saying this. In one sense, it is a totally straightforward proclamation of the abundant goodness of God. He is able to do, and he does do, far greater things than you ever thought to ask for. It's true. But there's a problem, which most Christians realize a little ways into their walk, and so then often enter into a second stage of understanding. Because we come to realize that many of our desires are selfish, and much of our understanding is wrong. And God is not here promising to give us even better versions of our selfish desires or a greater fulfillment of our wrong understanding. He's not actually promising you a pony here. At least not in the way and in the timing that a little girl would want it to come. Just look earlier in our chapter for lots of examples of what I'm talking about. Verse 1, Paul is in prison. He's not living the high life. He's suffering. He's deprived of even his basic rights. In verse 6, Paul talks about one of the greatest ways that God's work was beyond his understanding is that Gentiles were made fellow heirs of the promises of God, meaning people that he had considered to be outsiders were brought into intimate fellowship with him, people that he would have never wanted to associate with, that he thought were beneath him, that he thought were condemned or unclean, are now in his family of faith. So to make it practical, if he's a father, they can marry his daughter now. And on and on it goes. And so as we grow in faith, we start to realize these things. We realize that Jesus promises his followers suffering and hardship, that his greatest promises are received by faith, that God is seeking after a lot of things that naturally we don't even actually want. And so we realize that God's promises are not simply greater than what we were thinking, but they are also radically different than what we were thinking. And that also is true. God is not promising you a pony beyond your imagination here. And once this reality starts to sink in, many of us enter into this second stage of understanding. We realize that our simplistic, selfish understanding of the promise was so incomplete that it basically was wrong. And when that happens, we can transition from thinking that God's plans are greater than our desires— to simply thinking they are different than our desires. And because of that, actually view them as less than our desires. Maybe at first all we saw was the greater, and we didn't see the different. But coming to see the different can make us blind to the greater. We may have lost our naivete, but we've also lost our appreciation for the greatness of the promise. 
So experientially, it's like if the little girl asking for a toy horse realizes she's not going to get a pony, she's not even going to get the toy horse. Instead, she's going to get some good books to read and a year's supply of salad. And reading and salad may be good for her, but they are firmly in the camp of what she should do, not in the camp of what she actually wants. Right? And if you are set on your heart's desire, then different can very easily mean worse. And though they may not admit it, I think that is how a lot of Christians feel about God's plans and promises. I think they basically view them as a spiritual version of a year's supply of salad. Maybe it's good for you, but frankly not as good as what you think and want. I think that is one of the main things that holds people back from truly giving their lives over to the Lord. And there's probably some people here today that are in both of those first two camps. Some of you may see that God promises you greater things than you can imagine, but are still fundamentally selfish and idolatrous in your understanding. Some of you may have come to understand that God promises you things quite different than what you wanted or thought, but you don't actually think it's good and wonderful. But the truth of our passage is that both of those are true, and they're tied to each other. God's works in the world are far more abundant than what we're looking for. They are greater. But they are also far beyond our natural categories and desires. They are different. But even that difference is greater, meaning better, more truly aligned with what we would ask for and think if we only had eyes to see clearly. And the whole story of the ministry in Istanbul is a picture of that reality. Stonehill, by a different name, sent us out into the field in 2006. Our team at the time consisted of Jen, myself, and our one-year-old son, Joshua. Uh, we landed in a city of 20 million people to begin a new ministry among oppressed migrants. And after three and a half years, we got to the point that we, we thought we understood the vision God had for the work. He had opened up all kinds of doors, but we didn't have a single teammate. In fact, we hadn't even had a single applicant in three and a half years. And up to that point, our basic prayer request was, Lord, give us the vision. And it changed to, Lord, send the workers. And a year later, we were a team of four. A year after that, a team of 10, then 14. Today, we're in flux, but we're a team of 31 adults with five more uh, refugees, interns working full-time with us, and more than 50 volunteers. We sent people out from our team to start an another team that now works independently alongside us. We've seen hundreds of Muslims come to faith and be baptized. Multiple churches begin and grow. Um, back when our team was only four people, I came to the conviction that we should eventually buy a building because of the ways it would enable much greater levels of freedom and boldness in ministry. And so in the fall of 2011, I shared with Jen and our two other teammates at the time that I thought it was time for us to really get ready for this building project. And they kind of laughed at me, and the response was pretty minimal, because for all of us, it seemed like a far distant idea. We were just a little team of four people. And then three days later, a friend approached us to ask if they could give a million dollars towards the building project. Um, we had never asked for a penny. And that building is now the largest ministry center in the country that I know of, housing many different ministries and six different churches. God has done far more abundantly than all we asked or thought. It is far greater. 
it is also radically different than anything we could have envisioned before we started the journey. The first thing we learn about entering into the glory of God is that it is rooted in the reality, in experiencing the reality, that God's plans are far beyond what we can understand on our own or would even think to ask for. But it's not enough to know this. You actually have to step forward and walk into his plans and see them unfold. And seeing the wonder of his plans shows you his glory. And as you see him do things that you weren't even thinking, you see his glory. And as you see him do it in your midst, you become a part of the demonstration of that glory. And that brings us to the second part of verse 20. Just as the demonstration and experience of God's glory is rooted in the greatness of his plans, so too it is rooted in the greatness of his power, according to the power at work within us. And there's two critical parts of this I think we need to understand. The first is that it has to be God's power, not just power in general. God himself has to show up. But second, it has to be working in us not just out there in the world, meaning it has to not only be true, but personally real and relevant. So let's look at those two things in turn. First, it's the very power of God that's at work in ministry. And when I say ministry, I don't just mean what people do who are in vocational ministry. I mean any act of genuine service or redemption. If you put the question this way, What can you accomplish that is of any eternal value, that is truly glorious in the real sense of the word through your own power and resources? And the answer is absolutely nothing. If you desire to be used by God, if you desire to be a part of the kingdom of God expanding in the world, then you desire to do something that it is impossible for you to do. You go share the gospel with someone, you can't soften their heart. You rebuke a brother or sister walking in sin, you can't make them listen. You try to come alongside a couple struggling in their marriage, you can't make them humble themselves and love one another. When I think back about our ministry, this is one of the clearest realities. All of the most critical things— All of the things that really determined our success are things that we had no control over. And it's not just that we didn't have the power to turn the levers. In most cases, we couldn't even dream of touching the levers that would control success. At the very center of our ability to experience God's power is this reality. God actually is at work in the world. He is doing things. He has plans. He is bringing about his will. And that means it is possible for God's people to enter into his work and have the very power of God actively and intentionally working in and through them. But that also means that at the heart of serving the Lord is being put in positions where you will fail if God does not show up. Now, there is a very real way to abuse this teaching. There are some people who attempt to wield the power of God like a magic wand, 
they call it faith. Maybe they say they're claiming God's promises. But really, they're just arrogantly pursuing their own plans and expecting to be able to use God to accomplish their goals. They're not walking in plans beyond what they could have thought or asked for. They're asking for the biggest things they can think of and then expecting God to jump when they say jump because they call it faith. It's not faith. It's idolatry. It's arrogant. It has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about here. But while we acknowledge that caution, this is also true. There are some things that don't get done unless God's people are willing to step out into the chasm before the bridge is there. Because God has sent them, and he will put the bridge in place as they go. If you want to enter into the glory of God, meaning if you want doxology to not only be something you say, but something that you live and feel and see, it is not enough for God to show up in the world. If your experience of God's power is only as a spectator, you will never truly exult. Listen, say you're, you're a part of a—say that you're single. You're a part of a group of single friends. Many of you would like to get married. Or you want to get married. One of your friends gets engaged. They fall in love, find the man or woman of their dreams, right? You congratulate them. It's good. You're happy. But you don't exult because you haven't truly tasted the glory of love. That doesn't happen until you find your love. You don't just want love to exist in the world— you want to live it in your life. To see the glory of God through his power, his power has to actually be a real, tangible, palpable thing in your life. It is not enough to be notionally convinced. It is not enough to believe the stories of the Bible and the accounts you hear from other Christians. You need to experience his power at work within you. You, you need things like to be threatened by opponents of the gospel and see God defend you, or to, to step out in faith in ways that will cost you deeply if God does not show up and support you, and then see him show up and support you, or to step forward to do your part in God's plans and then see God bring all the other pieces into place. Because here's the deal. If his power is at work within us, that means that we are doing a lot of things. We're active, not passive. It is in the pursuit of God's plans. It's not in the pursuit of our plans. But that does not make it any less of a pursuit. God's power is at work within you as you play your role in the unfolding of his plans. Which means you have to actually get out there and play your role. The most difficult things I have ever done the hardest jobs, the longest hours, have been in the pursuit of being faithful to the role that I've had in the things God is doing. And so just very practically, for me, the dynamic often looks something like this. I, I know that if I don't do my job, probably whatever's on hand is not going to happen. God uses means, and I think most of the time that means that we have the capacity to destroy a ministry or opportunity through our failure. So what I do as respons—so I have responsibility. What I do matters. But I also know that no matter what I do, I cannot make it happen. Because the critical parts all belong to God. 
He has to do his thing. And that means as I labor, I have rest for my soul. Because the outcome is not dependent on me. My job is to be faithful. God's job is to do his work. And so time after time, on our team, the situation looks something like this. We, we become convinced that there's something we're supposed to press into. But the pieces are not all in place yet to make it work. There's enough of an open door that we think we're supposed to start walking through it. And if we don't start, nothing's going to happen. But once we start, we are dependent upon God in all kinds of ways to do all kinds of things or we don't have a chance. So we step forward and we work hard and then watch as God does all the heavy lifting, moving the levers that we can't hope to touch. And this dynamic also explains something that Jen and I have begun to experience more often as God has grown his ministry in Istanbul more and more. Because God's done amazing things. It's true. But some people see that, and then they start to think highly of Jen and I, as if we caused it to happen, or as if it was somehow the reasonable outcome of our labors. That's ridiculous. Praising us for God's work in Istanbul is totally out of touch with reality. As Christians, our job is not impressive. Our job is simple faithfulness. It's like Discipleship 101. Yes, we have a role to play. Every genuine disciple does. But being faithful to walk in the good works that God has prepared for you to do is not being a remarkable Christian. It's just being a real Christian. And people who come to visit, they'll often comment that we have an amazing team. And it's true. We love our team. It's a gospel community that loves one another and serves the Lord and corrects and forgives each other. It's great. But we're not a particularly impressive group. Our team is not particularly strong in faith. As a whole, we are not particularly godly or experienced or gifted. We're at best a pretty average crew. But God's power is at work within us. The second thing we learn about experiencing God's glory is that it is rooted in experiencing his power at work within us and through us. And as that happens, we see him more clearly. And that brings us to verse 21, our final point. We'll be brief here. Right, we've said that to enter into God's glory, we need to experience the unfolding of his plans, which are beyond our understanding, and we need to experience his power, which is beyond ours. And the last point may be the most important. And honestly, it's a test of whether you really believe the first two. This is all directed toward God. See, if you believe that the great things happening in your life are the unfolding of God's plans, and beyond your understanding, you won't feel pride. If you believe they are utterly based in the greatness of God's power, and that you are impotent to do anything of real value on your own, then you won't feel pride. Right? Let's say that I'm playing a game of chess with my four-year-old son. He doesn't really understand what to do, so each time he moves, I show him where to go, or if he just makes a silly move, I kind of adjust so it works out okay for him. Sometimes I explain why I tell him to go somewhere. Sometimes I just tell him to go there and tell him to trust me because he's not going to understand it anyways, right? And I let him win. He beats me. 
he explodes from the table. Mom, I just crushed dad at chess. I'm so much better at chess than he is. And that's cute. When your four-year-old does that, you smile. It's not so cute when a grown man or woman is still doing that with God. Frankly, then, it's kind of pathetic and sadly ignorant. If it is God's plans that are unfolding through his power, then he gets the praise. Or let's say next week you meet Patrick McCaw. Now, some of you haven't heard of him. I guess that some of you have. But as you talk to him, see, he starts telling you all about how he just won the NBA championship. He says, oh yeah, I led my team all the way through the finals. Frankly, I willed us to victory. And he is on the Toronto Raptors. He is an NBA champion. He did play in the finals for a total of 12 minutes across all the games. He scored three points. And if you start hearing him boast as if he led his team to the championship, which I have no reason to believe he's done, what would you think? Well, you'd think he was ridiculous. You'd probably think he was a little pathetic. How do you think God feels about the minister who boasts about the great things that have been done through his power? If it is all according to God's power at work within us, then God gets the praise. To him be the glory. And so here's a very simple test. When you're a part of something great, how do you feel? See, if you see all these realities, you will feel grateful. If you don't see the realities, then you will feel great. But we aren't great. God is great. But you need greatness and glory in your life. The way to get it is by being taken up into the greatness and glory of God. And then when we praise him, when we exalt him, we become a part of it because we belong to him. And he's working it out through us. And you don't just need that for a moment. You need it forever. Throughout all generations, forever and ever, Paul writes. It never ends. And we long for this, right? When a team wins a championship, what do they say? Oh, this will never be forgotten. Someone makes an incredible sacrifice for the greater good, and people say, we'll never forget what she did. We tell our lovers, I will love you forever. And when we say these things, mostly, we're wrong. People forget. Time moves on. It passes away. But innately, we know that is not how glory is supposed to work. That we're built for permanence. And not just permanence, but permanent significance. And all those other things pass away. The only way any victory, any sacrifice, any love will truly last forever and ever is if it is taken up into God's glory. We are built for doxology. Not just to say it, but to live inside it. We enter into God's glory as we enter into his plans and his power for the sake of his person. Let's pray.
Father, truly you are a great God whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose power is the source of every other power that exists in this universe. Father, we are grateful that you've made us your own, that you sent your Son, that he died for our sin and our arrogance, that he rose again, that he lives forever, that in our weakness you are strong, that in our faithlessness you are faithful. And God, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see who you are, that we would see the greatness of your glory. We would say how, see how good are your plans, how sufficient is your power, and that we would walk in your ways, that you would be praised. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.